Rates and Barrels is brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Ticket prices drop right before the game starts, and because GameTime tracks prices in real-time from thousands of trusted sellers, they're able to show you the best last-minute deals with prices up to 60% off. It's the baseball off-season, so it's my opportunity to get some culture. GameTime has tickets for all the sporting events you want, but you can also save money on theater and concert tickets as well. Maybe you want some last-minute tickets to this weekend's Wisconsin-Purdue game at Camp Randall. GameTime has you covered. Maybe you need some Hamilton tickets. GameTime has you covered there too. Plus, the checkout process is fast and easy. Two taps. That's Eno-friendly technology, folks. The GameTime app is simple, quick, and easy to navigate. Download the GameTime app on Google Play or the App Store and score last-minute deals on tickets up to 60% off. Welcome to Rates and Barrels, episode number 54. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. On this episode, we'll discuss our 2020 expectations for Luke Voigt, the general problem of position eligibility and some proposed changes to make that run more smoothly in the future, our preferred strategies for keeper and dynasty league depth, basically how we want to structure the back end of our roster in very deep prospect leagues. We'll also have our prospect of the week selections at the end of the hour. Beer of the week goes on hiatus until December, thanks to some uh, illnesses that have fallen upon Eno and myself over the last week or so. Uh, some very big show-related news. You might be listening to us for the very first time as our show is now available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere that you want to listen to podcasts. We'll try to get it on some more platforms in the next few weeks. But if you're listening to this show on a platform that allows you to rate and review it, please take a moment to leave us a nice rating and review. We would greatly appreciate that. Uh, and if you are a new listener who's not already subscribed to The Athletic, you can get 40% off a subscription at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. Everything we do as a site is included with a subscription. You know, happy Tuesday. Uh, I imagine you've been doing the cough drop green tea you know, routine that I've been on for the better part of the last week. But how are things going otherwise? Oh, all right. I've been hitting it hard. I've been at the, I do, uh, what do I do? I do the uh, zinc lozenges, you know, the coldies. Uh, I, I do the, uh, something starts with a V that I snort in my nose. And, um, and in fact, because I have a little bit of bronchial asthma, I do a little bit of inhaler uh, to, to kind of stay out in front of nasty, uh, bronchitis situation I can get into. So basically, I spent a lot of money in the cold industrial complex. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm more of a Luden's guy myself, and I haven't mm. snorted anything to uh, make my cold <laughs> go away. So I don't know if, if you're talking about Vicks Vapor Rub. I didn't know you were supposed to snort that. I thought that was supposed to go like <laughs> top of your chest, like below the neck area. Not sure. Yeah. Haven't had it in a while, so haven't haven't read the directions. But if it's working for you, keep doing it. Tis, tis the season. Yes. Disclaimer: Do not take our medical advice in any way. <laughs> not, neither of us is a doctor. We are not responsible for anything you do with any medicine at any time. 
I think that holds up in a court of law. Um, let's go on to our first topic. Let's talk about Luke Voigt for a moment. I think you were the one that drafted him in the pitcher list mock that we've been doing for a couple of weeks now. Uh, I got him in a draft at First Pitch Arizona back in October, and he's one of the guys that I'm definitely bringing down a little bit once I update my two early rankings here at some point between now and the end of the month. And, and most of it is just that you don't have to take him where I had him ranked. And I think it it tends to be a bad thing when you have a, a commonly skilled player ranked well ahead of the field. And part of the concern, I think, for a lot of people is that things really fell apart for Luke Voigt in the second half of 2019, but he was hurt. And I wrote this on Twitter, the splits for Luke Voigt. You know, before the injury on June 28th and after the injury were pretty extreme. I mean, if you look back at, at what was happening with him, he was basically maintaining most of what we saw in 2018 before the injury. And once that injury hit, he was a totally different guy. So pre-injury, 280, 393, 509 for the slash line, 17 homers, 50 RBIs. That was in 349 plate appearances. K rate, just over 25%. Walking a ton, 14% walk rate. After the injury, 228, 348, 368. So he lost a ton of power. Four homers, just the 12 RBIs in 161 plate appearances. So that home run rate was basically cut in half once you adjust for the differences in playing time. And the K rate jumped up to 32.3%. So... Obviously, the injury was a factor, but how do you balance information like that? He had core muscle surgery after the season ended. How do you balance that with the difficulties that come from a skill set and from a player who kind of popped up late and could burn out quickly, even if injuries were the main reason for the second half struggles? Yeah, I mean, I know that you you pointed that out on Twitter and... I am all on board with that sort of analysis because one thing that projection systems don't realize, and it, it, that's one thing that I, you know, might have been texting you about during this. Uh, you know, we're not supposed to have table talk, so I, I might have been. I'm not. I'm not admitting that I did, uh, but I might have been texting you about Luke Voigt's projections uh, during this this draft that we're in. And one thing I said was. You know, like, why are these projections so bad? You know, uh, right now he's projected to hit 240 with 18 homers in, you know, 400-plus at-bats next year. That would be like a 240-24 or something when he was on pace in 2018 uh, to clobber something like 40 homers. And, you know, somebody replied saying, oh, he got figured out. Um and it's certainly possible because we're not dealing with the largest of samples in any case, you know, across the board. But I did look at his game log and, you know, before June, he faced Houston, uh, Tampa, you know, twice, uh, Boston twice, Cleveland twice. Uh, he, he faced some good uh, pitching staff. So I don't think it was that you know they that 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 he faced bad teams early, uh, and good teams early and bad teams uh, the other way around. Bad teams early and good teams late. In fact, he ended the season facing Toronto, Detroit, 
uh, and Texas mostly in terms of uh, uh, in terms of uh, quality opponents. So I think instead what happened is he got hurt. Uh, you can see it in the exit velocity. He had plus, plus exit velocity in 18, 93 miles an hour. Maybe that's not necessarily sustainable over the full course of the year, but going into this year, he had 91, 92 early going. He gets hurt. It drops to 88 or so, uh, and the power drops. So uh, what I see is he got hurt. We have a diagnosis. We have a date. We have the splits that show us that he was different before and after. We have the debate about how healthy he was before, you know, the the postseason rosters were put together, um, and, and we have uh, we have projections that can't see that he was playing hurt, that just see that his power went down and project him off of that. So, I'm going to say he's great value going into next year, especially in on base percentage leagues where his walk rate will help uh, mitigate his bad batting average, but. You give me an over under on on home runs next year. It starts at twenty five. Yeah, I was gonna say twenty four and a half would be my number, and I think more of it comes from concerns about the depth the Yankees have and and how mm-hmm. if things were to go wrong for part of a season or if he gets hurt again, yeah, there's there's Wally Pip risk if he gets hurt, and there's sort of the same thing that happened to Jesus Aguilar could happen to Luke Voigt. You know, you got this mashing right-handed hitting first baseman who if he's not quite himself and they have a lefty who comes into the mix that is just crushing the ball he becomes a small side platoon guy and on a team that good he becomes kind of expendable like you just don't have the roster flexibility to make it all work like that's sort of the the nightmare scenarios that you can think of but I see more to like than to dislike when I break down the profile. Yeah, 100%. And you can even just uh, look at a quick split. What time did you say, what date did you say the injury was? June 28th. All right, so let's just take before and after. I'm going to, and this is um, really just brute force here, but I want to just look at, his launch speed, uh, his exit velocity before and after. I'm taking just uh, a, a real quick average. Like I said, this is not the the uh, finest of tools here, but uh, his average exit velocity, uh, including 18 and 19 before the injury, uh, was 91 miles an hour, and his average afterwards uh 90 so uh he went down a full tick i would say um and uh that's a brute force mechanism there so you know uh i would say that definitely the injury was a a big part of it i mean his insides were hanging out yeah that's (laughs) (laughs) that is actually what core muscle repair surgery basically amounts to so uh, I, I see a potential top 100 overall guy if he's healthy. So definitely more in uh, than than scared. One thing I would say, though, that is more about this actual draft that um, that, we're, that we're in uh, and, and, and more about how drafts work is that I put together a really good team and we're talking about, I think is a really good team. We're talking about the speed and all the different players I have and 
Uh, I've got Harper, Sale, Turner, Machado, Stanton, Real Muto. Like, I just feel like I, I did really well, but I didn't realize I was punting first base in the process. <laughs> and by taking Real Muto right after him in quick succession, Olsen, Goldschmidt, LeMahieu, um, and that was kind of the end of uh, what I what I thought was like really uh, a set thing. I thought, okay, I'll get Hoskins later. Um, but um, I realized I didn't have a second baseman, so I took Mike Moustakis, and that cost me Hoskins. And then all of a sudden, I have not taken first baseman. Now, I took Luke Voigt in the 14th round, a full five rounds after Carlos Santana, who was the first baseman before, uh, the last first baseman taken before me. So obviously, I got some value out of punting first base. But if Luke Voigt doesn't hit, it becomes a little bit like the... Uh, who's the who's white um, Tyler White situation from last year, where I did something similar, ended up with Tyler White and got screwed. But you had a couple chances to find corner help that may have bailed you out. Christian Walker, who actually went four rounds later than where you took Voight in this particular mock, I think is is similar in a lot of ways. Hits the ball very hard, you know, right-handed first baseman, probably some long-term concerns about how long he'll sustain being a, a quality middle-of-the-order bat. I mean, if you're looking at those two side-by-side, side, you took Voight <clears throat> where you did for a reason. Does Walker belong in the same tier as Voight, or does Voight belong closer to the tier of those ninth-round first basemen like Carlos Santana and Yuli Gurriel and Reese Hoskins in this particular draft? You know, Voight just hits the, damn, the ball so damn hard, you know? And, and Walker's not bad in that regard. Uh, but let me just look at a quick leaderboards thing here for uh, Exavos and Barrels. So Walker, uh, 8% barrels, uh, 91 uh, average. Voigt, uh 8% barrels, uh, 90 average, and 91 when he's healthy. So actually, that's a really good one right there. Uh, you know, Voigt's stadium is, is probably a little bit better. Um, but, you know, I guess I could have waited another four rounds, I guess. Uh, but at that point, you start to get uh, a little panicky and, and feel like you need to get one. Other guys that I could maybe take to uh, do what you're saying with Walker is like maybe get two uh, first basemen that could be similar. Um, Daniel Murphy's still on the board. That's kind of amazing. And he was hurt. Like, he couldn't even bend his finger for much of last year. We talked about that on the podcast. Um and, um, you know, CJ Crone is still there. Um, but uh, it gets a little dicey at the bottom. Eric Thames, depending on where he signs. Um, yeah, I could I could take a shot at Nate Lowe late. But, uh, you know, maybe first base is not the place to punt. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not a it's not a punt position, but I. I, I didn't think, mean to. <laughs> there's enough there, though. I think there's... And CJ Crone kind of fits into this this second group with, with Voight and Christian Walker, where if I don't get a first baseman early, I'm not panicking. If I miss from that next group, then I'm panicking because some of the, the really low-end options are extreme playing time risks, or they could just fall off the face of the earth, too, because they're probably 33 years old or, or older. You know, like there's a few ways it can go wrong. Um, I have one other observation from from this draft, and it's it's more of just a, a general early draft observation. Tommy Pham looks like one of the most underrated early round players 
yet again. He hit the second lowest O-swing percentage among qualified hitters last year, 20%. Only Alex Bregman was lower. He was down two miles an hour with exit velocity, but he's still at 90.8. And, you know, I'm looking at that and thinking, okay, he still hit 21 homers, had these nagging injuries. Maybe he's always one of those nagging injury guys. I know people are worried about the vision, but the the vision issues don't seem like they're going to really be any more risky than like any other player injury-wise. It seems like he's just got that situation under control. 25 for 29 as a base dealer. And he's, he's got a really nice batting average floor. If he's not chasing pitches outside the zone, hits the ball as hard as he does and runs well, he's a true five-category player. And yet, here he is, 63 overall in this mock. Like That's, that's a steal. God, you know who I'm getting real vibes of? It's kind of crazy. Shinsu Chu. Oh, Peak Chu, yeah. Wow. Wow. He's like really similar. Uh, slightly too high ground ball rate, you would think. But that that leads him to sort of hit the ball super hard and get really nice batting average, really nice batting averages on balls in play. You know, 2020 guy during the peak for a while and undervalued, you know, for a long time. Of course, this is, you know, he's 31 and this is about the time that Shinsu 2 stopped stealing bases and became less undervalued. And I think that's part of what people are worried about is that he'll stop stealing any moment. But there's a little bit of, um, you know, this is this is not numbers here for a second. But one of the reasons that I really admire uh, Tommy Pham is he has the biggest chip on his shoulder, <laughs> I think, of any player I've ever met. I think he could probably tell you every player that was drafted above him. <laughs> and he, he like, you know, like this year he told me, you know, uh, what's the, who's the, who's the, uh, who's the GM over in, uh, in, in, uh, in St. Louis. Oh, John Moseliak. Yeah, he said, Mozilliak said I had an eye problem, and that's why he wouldn't give me a, a long-term deal. And here I am with my best reach rate of my career, uh, not, swinging at, not swinging at balls, only swinging at strikes. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And I think actually, you know, motor, I think I've talked, I might have talked about this on here. Motor is the, I think the, the thing that is the hardest to define and the most important thing that we cannot define yet. And then one of the most important things that we could get from a scout, and it, it's part of makeup or whatever, but makeup is a really complicated thing to talk about because you could say Fam has bad makeup. In fact, a lot of people have said that. He's bad for the locker room. He's, he's too egotistical. He's this or that and the other thing. But in one very important way, Fam has great makeup. He has this huge chip on his shoulder, and he has a super high motor. And he's going to... He's, he is going to get the very most out of what he can, out of the skill set he's got, the time he's got in the big leagues. He's So I don't think he's going to stop stealing. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think he's well aware of like a caught stealing and what that value is. But you know, you don't see him stealing 25 times being caught 15. He's not like that. He understands, he actually understands fan graphs and has been uh, a fan of mine since I've written about him on fan graphs. So like, he knows all about fan graphs. He knows all about how these value is calculated. He doesn't want to get caught. But he does want to steal bases because he cares. You know, he wants he wants to put up the best friggin' numbers he can to show Mazilliak he was an idiot. 
Yeah, and and I mean, it helps his own bottom line too. Like he's still a couple years away from free agency, so every yeah, I'm sure the stuff comes up in, helps him in in arbitration. You know, so uh, I I think you know he's permanently undervalued, and people focus perhaps too hard on the ground ball rate when he unloads into one he still has 20 plus homer power and he's always talking to me about how he'd like to lift the ball more um you know i think there could be a season still where he tinkers and finds you know that 48 percent ground ball rate from 2018 uh but the hard hit rate and the contact rates of 2019 and he has another season where he hits 300 maybe hits 25 homers and steals 20 bases uh, I think that that sort of season is still in him, and the projections of 270, 24, and 18 still super super valuable. Definitely undervalued guy. Yeah, I mean a 12.1 percent projected walk rate, career 12.2. He's been double digits every single year except for 2014 when he only had two plate appearances, so that doesn't count. I mean he's been drawing walks forever as a big league hitter. I really like Tommy Pham, especially where he's going. He could go around earlier, and he'd still seem undervalued to me uh just a broad question for you i started thinking about this as the season came to an end every year i start going through and looking at position eligibility and and many leagues out there still use 20 games played the previous season to determine eligibility and it leaves us with a bunch of ut only guys and then some of the ut only guys are really odd because they you know maybe didn't come up until September or the near end of the year and they kind of split their time between DH and a position in the field but they got a little more time at DH and the old rotisserie book says that makes them a DH so that's all you can do is use them in the UT spot right it's it's this kind of goofy thing that needs to change and I just started wondering like how can we how can we fix this if we're not the commissioners of our league we're at a point in the offseason where it's a good time to get in the ear of the commissioner and say hey why don't we think about modifying our league rules a little bit so 10 games the previous year is the cutoff or in the case of a guy like Nick Solak when he gets called up in September let's use the minor league games played by position along with the limited defensive games played by position that he had from the big leagues like Nick Solak being UT only doesn't make sense he's a guy that could play all over and he happened to catch a few more starts at DH than at second or third base and that's that's not a negative thing. Like it's just random. Yeah, it's not. There's no easy solution. You know, I, I do. I actually like your your idea of throwing in the minor league stuff. If you did that, Solak would be an easy second base eligible guy. Um, there's a there's a wrinkle like that in AL labor, where you know I took advantage of it one year and I got Matt Duffy as a shortstop. Because Matt Duffy had played one inning the year before in rehab, <laughs> and it was that shortstop in the minor leagues. Uh, yeah, there's a in in labor. It's basically if they don't have enough games in the major leagues to decide. I guess that's the easy solution then. If they don't have enough games in the major leagues to decide, go to their minor league stuff. What's nice about that is that I don't know. Otani didn't really pitch, so it doesn't really work for Otani. But Otani, you can't think too hard about Otani. Shohei Otani's too weird of a player to worry about his pitching eligibility and how to save that. But let's say, uh, let's say a pitcher comes back as a reliever or something. and He's not a starting pitcher until five games into the season or something. And you can't use him in auto new, for example, you can't use a starter in the relief spot. Um, 
you you can't uh, like if they're starting, you won't get points for them if you put them in the release spot. So I think that something that could be useful there is the minor league thing again, because that person would probably rehabbed as a starter. And if you go back and use their minor league stuff, even if they came up to the big leagues and pitched five, 10 innings at the end of the season as a reliever, you know, they probably had a bulk of their innings as a starter. So you could do something that's not only go back to the minor leagues, but also maybe we're like a percentage. So like, where were they, where do they play the most? You know, what's the 55%, you know, what's the biggest, what's the biggest portion of their, of their work. Um, and if that case, if you go back and you look, okay, this, this pitcher came off Tommy John, he was hurt most of the year. He rehabbed in the minor leagues, uh, like AJ puck, like, you know, he rehabbed the minor leagues as a starter for some point, And then he turned to reliever in the minor leagues and he came to reliever in the major leagues. That AJ puck should be eligible at starter pitching at starting pitching and relief pitching in my, in, in my estimation. And the minor league, uh, the minor league workaround might, might get to that. Yeah, and kind of going back to Nick Solak for a second, like he had 83 games played at second base in the minors this year. So how does he not have second base eligibility everywhere? That's where he played the most in 2019. Like If he'd never been called up, he'd be second base eligible. He'd be second and maybe outfield in some leagues because he played 25 in the outfield in the minors. I think most of the leagues I play in only count the primary position. It just seems like we've got some really outdated rules guys move around more now than they used to as well i mean when that book was written guys played really one position for the most part guys did not move around in that era nearly as much as they do now right that's true and and it's uh you know i I guess i'd also be in favor of maybe relaxing it uh past 20 uh a lot of leagues are at 20 20 just seems like a, a pretty large number especially when you're talking about guys coming up in the second half of the season and it's kind of important in a deep league. If you're going to pick up Nick Solak, you're going to want to play him at middle infield. That's where he's most playable, and that's where he'll give you the most value. And uh, you know, having to draft him at util and then and draft some other second baseman and wait until Solak becomes second base eligible is uh, you know frankly annoying and uh, also not really in the spirit of the game, maybe. Yeah, it's like standing in line to pick up a form you need, then having to fill out the form and then get back into a different line to turn the form in. Like it's like it's like, like our position eligibility defaults are like DMV sort of procedures. Oh my god, yeah, I like that. That's pretty good. So we could fix this. Like, and it's just I wanted to bring it up on this show because it's the time of year. There's not as much going on. It's the time you have to think about these things because you kind of forget about them once you get more excited about January, February, and and March, or getting into more drafts and. This kind of stuff's already established, so if you can control it, you want to bring that threshold down from 20 to 10 and actually use the minor league numbers wherever you can to get guys off of UT-only status. There's some guys who are UT-only. Nelson Cruz is only a DH. Chris Davis is only a DH. Can't help you there. You were going to ask about the value of those guys, and I think that's something that's interesting to debate, too, because I, I picked up Otani last year in labor, and I got him for like six or seven bucks, and I got a 290 average, 18 homers, 12 stolen bases, very nice. But I didn't, I couldn't, it left me not able to bid on, well, I was mad for a second about not being able to bid on Kendrys Morales. So um, <laughs> it saved you I from guess. yourself. Thanks. Thanks, Otani. But, you know, the, the, traditionally, DH is one of the places that, is DH only players that's a definite place to get value but there are ways that you're costing yourself there are things you can't do you can't catch 
a falling star basically you can't catch a falling player that shouldn't be so that shouldn't be so cheap you can't you can't go six outfielders or you know get three short stops you know uh, because because that's what the market is giving you. So you 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 kind of you cut yourself off from being able to take some of the values that are out there in an auction, uh, especially, but also even in a snake. The the deeper the league, the more you're cutting yourself off from you know stri- strategery. Yeah, I'm with you there. I think that that discount on UT only players. I mean, it goes back several years now. I just I think there's a, there's too much worry put into not having that flexibility i think depending on the type of league you're in you got to be a little more careful with it in a very deep league you're not going to find a great excess hitter to fill the ut spot like a mono league just get the ut only guy if he's discounted i feel like you can do a little more in mixed leagues with that spot but i have generally stopped worrying about filling the ut spot with an elite hitter and whether that's Nelson Cruz or Shohei Otani at this point, uh, I think Jordan Alvarez is also UT only in a lot of leagues going into 2020 as well. Like Those guys are at a level where I'm okay with it. I'll find the flexibility elsewhere. I'll find corner guys or outfielders or middle guys that can go somewhere else, and then I can kind of move pieces around within the lineup when someone gets hurt, and I don't really lose flexibility uh, as as the season goes along, like when someone gets hurt, I still have the flexibility to play almost anybody off the bench because there's enough guys that can move around, and you do pick up more positions, of course, uh, in season as well. So wait, you're you're less likely to worry about filling your uh, DH your util spot with a DH only in, the deeper it gets or the sh- shallower. Less worried about it in a deeper league because there's just not that many want, great yeah. hitters to go around. You know, like right. um, the six out your six outfield situation is not great. Your third shortstop is not great. You know, <laughs> you'd right. rather have the DH only guy for sure. And, and again, I, I'm not really that worried about it anyway. But I would say if if you are someone who is traditionally worried about it, you shouldn't worry about it at all in an only league, yeah. especially uh, for that league. reason. Oh, in an only league, yeah, yeah, an only league, yeah. Uh, Alvarez is 10, 10 games started at, in, in the outfield. So uh, DH only in something like labor. That's why I, I swear the 20, the 20 seems like a lot. That's why that's a part. Like use Jordan Alvarez as a reason to switch it to 10. I know he's not a good defensive outfielder, but just but don't, he, don't have the constraints. He's not DH only. And, and maybe you could do it as a percentage again, right? So it's 10, 10 games out of, out of 87. So uh, it would have been 20. It would have been very close to 20 if he'd had 162. Yeah, that's true. I mean, he basically had a half season and even in the minors, he played 20 he played 29 games in the outfield in the minors. Like they were trying to give him reps out there. When do you philosophically own a position? I feel like if you play 30% of your games at a position, you own that position. Yeah, 30 is plenty. 30%? Maybe even 20. Like the only time you don't own the position really is when you're such a liability that you just never really get a chance to play it. Like when you don't even get to play the spot in interleague, yeah. then then you should be UT only. One appearance is ridiculous because there are all sorts of weird things. Like when Anthony Rizzo was called a second baseman once because he he was too far shifted or whatever. <laughs> did he change like, gloves too or not? Did he, did he just keep yeah, the same glove on? Forget how he that changed played gloves out. once, and that was actually part of part of. Uh, Part of saying he was the second baseman that day, but uh, you know, one five—that's a little bit low. Those are just those are just quirks sometimes 
But, uh, you know, 20%, that means that once a week you're playing this other position. Yeah, man, that's yours. Yeah, five, like five appearances versus five starts, I think, are a big deal. Like, if you wanted to use five starts from the previous season, that'd be okay. I think in season, it gets a little trickier. But uh, anyway, please, 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 please address the position eligibility issues in your league. If you've been using 20, you got to bring that threshold down. Uh, we got a question, a couple of questions from Joe in our mailbag this week. Uh, the first is about deep minor league systems in dynasty leagues. Joe wants to know, is there a best way to approach building the back end of your roster, either by having you know more July 2 type signing guys or uh, strong like rookie league performers? Uh, what's the way to go as far as having those guys on the back of the roster versus leaving some spots for um, pop-up prospects that might... Uh, emerge over the course of the spring or the the early part of the season. And he's talking about a league where you might have 30 or possibly even 40 minor leaguers. I mean, that's a pretty big team. So that's big. That's like the Devil's Rejects League you've talked about or uh, mm-hmm. the Rotowire Dynasty League uh, that I play in. Like, it's it's a huge, huge league. How do you like to go about that? Like, do you, do you try to just swing for the fences and find the 17-year-old, 18-year-old guys that are just getting their first exposure in rookie league or just signed their first contract and and hope to catch lightning in a bottle? Is that still like a kind of a core belief for you, just hoping to get extremely valuable trade chips or maybe the occasional Acuna or Vlad Jr. or player that just becomes such a a, a rapid-rising star that they become a, a central building block for your team? I think I would go young there. You know, I I often say that I skew close to the major leagues, ready, you know, ready prospects. But that's what I want to do at the top of my my prospect list. I would want to have, you know, Joe Adele, you know, rather than Wander Franco in in fantasy leagues because I'm going to find out about Joe Adele this year, and they're they're all a top. You know, they're we're talking about one A and and two A or one A and one B. So I'd rather I'd rather have the guy who's closer in that situation. So at the top of the list, I want the guy who's closer, ready to be on my team, and ready to contribute. But at the back end of my list, I'd rather they're further away. And the reason that makes sense, I think, is that if I catch lightning in a bottle there, they're going to move up lists and they're going to have trade value for me, and they can become a trade piece for me quicker. So I'd rather have that sort of rookie ball, A ball, and and maybe not so much rookie ball because they have to get through A ball before they really get on everyone's radars. So, but A ball, I really like, you know, because if you get an A ball performer, he gets the high A and then he gets a taste of double A, all of a sudden he's on lists, you know? And I do like the July, July 9 signings because they can move fast too sometimes. And what I want is to capture somebody before, you know, like we picked up Robert Poisson before he was signed. As soon as we heard that he was going to sign for a big number. If you hear that someone's going to sign for a big number, put him on your team now. Uh, when he signs for a big number, he's going to have a big spike in value, trade value. If you're competitive, trade him then. You know, that's when we traded him for Yandy Diaz and uh, Michael Chavis. You know, if you're not competitive, hold on to him. Maybe he turns into a really big prospect for you, but he's going to have a change in value quickly. Uh, so that's the, I'd rather have guys that are farther away, that have a higher ceiling, that that might hit some sort of threshold soon, that will change their value. Yeah, I I'm 
looking at it the exact same way uh, you are, I, I think, in most of my dynasty leagues. I mean, if I'm playing for a title right now, I might take a couple of those spots and take a chance on some guys that could help me this year instead. So maybe where you're at, where you are at in the competitive cycle mm-hmm. might dictate just how many of those spots. But just generally, if you're kind of near the middle and trying to move into the competitive lane, you are looking for the rapid growth prospects at the bottom as opposed to the solid regular types. And I think this example may have come up on a show back in May, I want to say it was. We were talking about Evan White. And I talked about cutting him in a league like this because he was a college first baseman. He was up to double A this year, I think it was. And he just wasn't wasn't really showing any signs of growth. And someone reached out and said, he's actually hurt. He's been playing with an injury. He's been in and out of the lineup. Um, it's like, okay, so that's kind of interesting. So I cut him loose, kept an eye on him. He got healthy. He went on a tear. Like he just, he went crazy in the second half of the season. And if you look like at double A with the bump up from high A last year, he actually increased his slugging percentage, you know, just showed a lot more power, was hitting the ball in the air more. All these things were going right. And the the reason I bring this up is like, you can, you can afford to miss on a player like that. Like I was able to get white back in that league for a low bid later on. But if someone else had scooped him up, I still don't think it'd be the end of the world because when I look at the scouting report, I see a future value 50 next to his name. And I don't think it's that difficult to find future value 50 players. And when you're looking at stashing away future J2 and and AZL type guys like Joe asked about, you're hoping to get 60s and 65s. You're hoping to just cash in and hit it big and actually have these guys that are either making a big difference on your roster or who, as they get to like high A, are shooting up prospect lists to the point where they become top 50 prospects before they've even proven they can handle double A. Like that's, that's kind of a sweet spot for trading prospects away. And I think you're just more likely to splash guys up into that range for trade chip purposes when you take that chance on the high-risk, high-reward player. Now, you might get... Gilbert Lara, like from the the Brewers signing class like five years ago. That happens. You miss. You're going to miss in that range. Freudis Nova from the Astros looks like a miss. But when you hit, the payoff is maybe like a Marco Luciano type as of right now. Mm -hmm. A guy you could trade for quite a bit in a dynasty league if you had him on your roster. Yeah, yeah. And if you hear a rumor, you know, a lot of these July 9 signings, is it 9? I don't know. Whatever. These these, Two. J2. Yeah, J2. That's right. (laughs) Uh, The ninth is a good day, too. I don't want to be, I don't want to denigrate the ninth. Uh, But the second, yes, July 2nd, those signings uh, are set in stone now. A lot of them. So, you know, sometimes those, those rumors come out and you'll, and you'll hear them. And to some people, to some players, those are too far away. But you pick them up now and in July, all of a sudden, you have a trade chip. Yeah, high risk, high reward. It feels a little dirty to pick up like a a fifteen year old, but hey, baseball's doing it. It's yeah, it's the way it's the way the system works. So if you've open pickups, you can get those guys right away. Do it. Otherwise, you can prioritize them. Even in like the middle and later rounds of your of your draft, uh, you can take a chance on a guy that you know isn't a top one hundred and fifty prospect yet, but could be by the end of the year if everything goes well. I think. That's generally where you want to take those chances. Now, I think there's also a sub question here from Joe about the hitter to pitcher ratio. 
my approach in keeper and dynasty leagues is to still go very heavy with hitters. I don't want to have a lot of pitching prospects. You can have a couple, take a couple of shots if you find really good high risk, high reward type guys. We're talking like big, like six five, big fastball, nasty breaking ball type guys, like glass nows and Thors, guys that have that sort of prospect profile at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll take the chance on that where the payoff could be an ace or a closer. If the long term scouting report points to more of a mid rotation type starter, I think you're taking on too much long term risk given the way pitchers can break down on their way through the system to have the occasional situation like a Bieber where you get a lot more out of that pitcher than expected, right? You don't want to be stuck with a lot of pitchers only to have a few of them break down and a few of them become just kind of mediocre guys. Look at the waiver wire in a deep dynasty league, there's passable pitching on the wire several times throughout the season. So you don't want to draft and hold on to what ends up being the same passable pitching that other owners are scooping up off the waiver wire. Yeah, I mean, just to do a really obvious but simple exercise, here is the 2017 Fangraphs Top 100 starting pitching prospects. These are the very top this is the very best prospects. You wanted Alex Reyes. You wanted Anderson Espinosa, Yadier Alvarez, Francis Martes. Lucas Giolito was the fifth best, 19th overall in the top 100. And just think about how many times you could have gotten Lucas Giolito since. <laughs> you, know? yeah. you didn't have to, you would never have held Lucas Giolito all the way to there. Michael Kopech, Cal, Cal Quantrill, Tyler Glasnow. Reynaldo Lopez, Jay Groom, Riley Pint. I mean, it's this is just like a graveyard. Brent Honeywell, Robert Giselman, Colby Allard, James Caprellian, Jose De Leon, Mitch Keller, Jeff Hoffman. I mean, I this is those are all top fifty, and we've got like two question marks, one hit, or maybe two hits, two question marks, and twenty misses. Yeah, and, and of those misses, a lot of them were guys that broke down, and others were just guys that are good or on their way to becoming big leaguers, but they're not difference makers from a and, fantasy standpoint. And some may, actually. Some of the quest, guys I'm putting question marks on may come back around. Like Cal Quantrill, I still like. You know, uh, you know, Brent Honeywell could get healthy. Uh, I have no idea what's going on with Anderson Espinosa. <laughs> I'm just going <laughs> to admit that. <laughs> He's somewhere. He's doing something. But he could come back. Um, and and one th- that's one thing that I notice is when I'm looking at the top starting pitching uh, in the league, they're old. And they took a while to get there. Even Jake DeGrom, you know. A lot, of, a lot of these guys took a long time to get there. And, you know, you just don't want to really hold them through all those bumps. You know, a lot of those guys are going to get dropped before they get picked up again. So the, the one thing that I've found, like the one wrinkle I would say, is that there is a sort of competitive cycle situation there where right now uh, in devil's rejects i have you know like a top three three team top three to five team i think in terms of the lineup is ready to go i have a bunch of pitchers and i found that i would like to have some starting pitching prospects on that team just in case they come up and hit. Maybe they'll come up and be a reliever for me, but whatever it is, like I'd, I want to have some of those guys there just because pitching is you just want quantity. 
And sometimes when the closer you are to competitiveness, you might want some of that quantity on the pitching side uh, in terms of prospects. So I, I might, I might keep Dalton Jeffries this off season, even though I have no idea what his health situation is, how many innings he's going to get. Uh, but the, the, the athletics are going to protect him. Uh, they're going to be interested in, in using him. And he, you know, has like a 12, 12 to one K to BB ratio. So, you know, I'm going to keep him around uh, because I just need as much upside as possible on the pitching side because I've traded away pitching for so long. We should probably put prospect of the week in right now since it's on topic with this type of yeah. question. You know, um, I'll, I'll go first. It's not a pitcher. Shocker. Uh, it's mm. an outfielder named Gilberto Jimenez. He's in the Red Sox organization. Uh, just 19 years old. Turned 19 back in July. He's got an 80-grade speed. Uh, according to fan graphs. This is a top-of-the-scale runner. Future 55 hit tool, I think it's a present 20, 25. It wasn't wasn't good when I looked, but this is a guy who played in the New York Penn League in 2019, had a 158 WRC+. plus. He's not expected to develop a lot of power. So far, hitting the ball on the ground like 60% of the time, but he's putting a lot of balls in play. 15% K rate, walks a little bit, 5% not great, but it's not terrible. could be a lot worse for a teenager as well. Um, not surprisingly, he's already in the top 100 for James Anderson over at Rotowire. I think he's in the 80s right now. But Jimenez is the perfect example of a high-risk, high-reward player that you want to have on the bottom of your roster in deep dynasty leagues. He might be gone if you play in a league like the ones we're describing already. I know he's owned in, in RDI, but if you're looking for guys like that, you're probably looking in the 150 to 200 range on the list for someone that hasn't debuted yet, but maybe they signed in the summer of 2018 and they were maybe playing in like the Dominican Summer League or something along those lines uh, this past summer. So you don't have much of a statistical track record to go off of, but you're sort of just buying in based on some some tools reports and some uh, what could go right sort of projections. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think that one of the hardest things to do if you're a fade prospects guys is, is to build up speed, you know, and that's what I've been in the past. Is stolen bases are a real weakness. Stolen bases age, age terribly, just hard to find in the league, and it's really hard to trade for an old dude that still steals bases, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I do gravitate towards. Uh, prospects that that have speed, uh, even though it's a weird it's a weird thing because among the Baseball America tools, among the sort of research that we've done on which tools uh, predict future outcomes best, which tools are the most predictive of future success, speed is the worst. Yeah, it's it's really risky it's a conundrum, <laughs> and that's the whole package or what seems like the whole offensive package. Uh, a couple of things that I like about Jimenez in particular, the biggest thing really is that he switch hits. So he might be the kind of guy, if he can switch hit effectively, he's an everyday player. And I think the defensive grades in terms of his arm, you know, there, there's not like a Juan Pierre grade on his arm with, with all due respect to Juan Pierre. I mean, you just, <laughs> you, you got, you have to look at things like that though, because if a guy is a defensive left fielder because of his arm and he's, only 160 pounds at age 19 and he's all speed, that's a problem. But a future 55 hit tool with a guy that walks a little bit already, has at least an average arm and has top of the scale speed, 
I'm kind of willing to see like where that goes. I mean, once he gets to a full season assignment in 2020, that'll probably be enough of a look to make a call at the end of next season. By this time next year, you'll probably have a pretty good feel for whether or not you want to keep a guy like Gilberto Jimenez on your roster for a few more years to wait for him. But you have to, you have to put yourself in a position for a player like that to have that big leap in value on your roster to start getting close to that future hit tool grade or develop a little more power than expected. Those things can happen too. Just as much as they can go wrong, things can go right or go better than expected. Yeah. And it's, and in all things given equal, it is better to have that speed on your team uh, because stolen base is so hard and you want, you want to get them at the beginning of their career that way. So uh, my prospect of the week uh, is, has some speed. Uh, he's a 55 runner according to fan graphs and uh, he didn't steal any bases in the major leagues. He did play in the major leagues. I wanted to get a, a guy who's on the cusp of losing his prospect eligibility just because I wanted to talk about this, uh, this sort of idea of fading prospects. And the reason that I trade prospects away for the most part, I, you know, the motto is sort of prospects are for trading and uh, Nico Horner, 55 runner, Eight stolen bases in the minor leagues. I've been talking about him on this podcast for ever. I love his combination of of patience and contact. I've talked about him be, having sort of Mookie Betsian potential, but he's always had a slightly higher ground ball rate than Betts, or a much higher ground ball rate than Betts. He could he hasn't been able to really lift the ball until this year in Double A for the Cubs. Uh, he had a much more even ground ball fly ball mix, and I thought, hey, this is all coming together. He's going to be a guy who comes to the major leagues, makes a lot of contact, and hits for good power. Uh, and he came to the major leagues, and he was okay. <laughs> I mean, he was fine, and his projections are good. This is a good outcome. The the Cubs are going to be happy with a league average major leaguer with a slightly with a little bit of upside when it comes to power. That's going to be great. At 22 years old, when he grows into his power, he could be a three to four win. He could be an all star type player. Uh, but for fantasy, it's going to look like a 280 batting average and 10 to 15 homers and five to 10 stolen bases, and that's just not that valuable. This is a top 50 prospect uh, that, uh, you know, had 50 future value uh, and, you know, would have had trade value. You could have traded Nico Horner for a lot better than what Nico Horner is going to give you. That's my point. Yeah, I'm looking at Nico Horner and some of the stat cast numbers on him from his limited time with the Cubs. And that was a desperation call up. I mean, Javi Baez was hurt. Mm-hmm. They got really thin in the middle infield and yeah, he was ample. Like he was actually a nice pleasant surprise upon debut, like relative to where I think he was at in his development. But the underlying numbers kind of resemble Nicky Lopez for me. And that's No, oh, it's funny. It's not great. I mean, like maybe it just means we're we're all like too quick to write off Nicky Lopez because he was part of Fabapalooza back in May. But right. there's a lot of blue ink on that Nicky Lopez page. Uh, 83.8 mile per hour exit velocity. Woof. 19.1% hard hit rate. Uh, you got X-Slug, Ewoba, and uh, Expo Bacon all in deep blue. And and uh, Nico Horner, 85.6 exit velocity, 23.5% hard hit. 
a lot of the similar characteristics without uh, the speed upside of Lopez even. So, yeah, definite problems there. Really low launch angle, too, in the major leagues. You saw a lot of ground balls. The one asterisk is that he's been hurt so often, and I've got confirmation from a Cubs source on this, that they saw better exit velocity numbers even before they had him in their system. Hmm. So there is a chance that there's still some healing going on and some growing in terms of growing into the healthy body, uh, that there could be better exit velocity coming in the future. There could be, we've seen from the double a 300, almost 300 plate appearances. We see that there is a chance that he lifts the ball a little bit more, but you know, in terms of, of comps out there, um, I doubt he, he gets the uh, fly ball rate above, you know, uh, 35% in the major leagues. And that's just going to limit his power outcome. I mean, yes, Christian Yelich has a 35% fly ball rate, but uh, there's a lot of other players that uh, around that level that do not have the kind of power that he does. So, you know, 35% fly ball rate this year. Um, you know, Brian Anderson, I think, could be a, a similar player. Um you know, Colton Wong had that. Um, I'm trying to look also for guys that didn't have necessarily plus-plus uh, exit velocity. But, you know, Raphael Devers did too. So, uh, you know, there's, a, there's still, there's still a, a chance there that he gets healthy, hits the ball harder, and uh, we see a little bit more out of him. But um, I think uh, one of the things that happens is you remember the guys you traded away that turned into stars. And it hurts a lot. And so mostly people want to hoard their, their prospects. And and you get that feeling, you know, like I was early on Ozzy Albies and I have, you know, shares of Ozzy Albies in every keeper league that I that I that I'm in. And it's kept me in keeper leagues <laughs> just to be like, I wanna see what I can get out of Ozzy Albies. There's another level, I promise. Um so I understand the feeling and I'm totally into it and that's cool. That's why I'm in dynasty and keeper leagues. It's, it's all good, but uh, don't cry too hard when you, you make a good trade where you trade away. Like I, I didn't want to trade Tyler Freeman. I've been talking here about Tyler Freeman forever, but I got Trevor Bauer um, and Colton Wong at a time when my team needed speed and needed another potential top end uh, starter. So uh, Tyler Freeman had to go. Yeah, no, there's, there's definitely, there's definitely that moment of frustration when the breakout happens after you've traded the player away. But if you're addressing the needs correctly, it's worth it. Like it, it generally, it's the way to get over the top in keeper and dynasty leagues. Uh, one last thought on this, by the way, if you look at the future tools, I mean, you, you've got like a 60 hit tool. I think on Nico Horner, 45 power, Nikki Lopez, I want to say is 50 hit tool, maybe 55 and 30 power. That's a pretty big difference in power. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm with you. Like I, th- I think there are reasons to believe that Nico Horner is going to tap into some power. I don't see any reason to believe that Nicky Lopez will tap into power whatsoever. <laughs> Just wanted to put that out there. But when you look at players, right. you're like, oh man, that was that. What was that debut like? Like the perception of Nicky Lopez's debut is, I think, kind of accurate. It was pretty bad. And yeah. with Horner, it's like, oh yeah, he came up and he hit some home runs and he was really good. It was like, well, he he was ample. His future yeah. could be bright, but I, I think this could be a sweet spot to trade him potentially in in long term. They leagues. could have very similar uh, numbers next year. 
They could. I mean, they're projected both into that sort of 10-10 territory. And Lopez, I believe Lopez's speed, for sure. But the injuries that, that Horner's been dealing with would also make things less favorable in his projection. So I think that's, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a good that's thing true. to keep in mind, too. Uh, I got a question here from Chandler. He is in a keeper league that's becoming a head-to-head categorical league. It was a head-to-head points. And he's got a dilemma about who to keep. He's got three keeper spots, and he already has Trout and Garrett Cole. So he's got one more he can use on Vlad Jr., Chris well, best Bryant. Best best pitcher is a good place to start. Yes, that's a really good place to start. Vlad Jr., Chris Bryant, Austin Meadows, or Jeff McNeil for that last spot. It's crazy that Jeff McNeil can be mentioned in the same breath as those other players. Um, you know, But long, long term, I don't think he belongs there, even though his... 2019 was was outstanding yeah uh, this is an interesting one because i think if you go by pure numbers uh mcneil is maybe the choice oh no meadows is probably the choice yeah i think meadows meadows because he kind of does everything you know bryant probably not going to run a whole lot mcneil a little older already and could fall off somewhat quickly but he's got i don't know i think jeff mcneil's got a skill set that generally leads to a pretty long career. Really low oh, K dude. rate and getting a lot better. I'm surprised by this. What do you, I what do you just got? looked at the auction calculator and it doesn't have any of his settings in it. But um Meadows is twelve dollars, McNeil is twelve dollars, and Vlad Guerrero Jr., who was gonna be my pick anyway, is fifteen. Yeah, so the projections probably still love Vlad because the age to level stuff he did before getting called up was amazing and even though it was a disappointment relative to the loftiest expectations a hitting prospect really ever gets he still had a good debut as a rookie it just didn't didn't come through at the early round fantasy pick sort of level that some people were hoping for yeah you know uh i've got i got a tweet here this guy dan o'coin works at driveline and he's someone that I really respect. Uh, and uh, he, he, one of the things that's really cool about what he gets to do is he has hitters that he can sort of experiment on. And so he can create things like attack angle, which is looks at uh, what, you know, the bat, how the bat is coming through the zone. And, um, and the sort of, you know, whether a guy has an uppercut or not. And the reason he can do that is they have, you know, the hitting technology there and they can relate sort of, uh, track man and, and, and stack cast type outcomes to actual attack angles. And so they can create a model that relates outcomes to attack angles and they can train that on the major leaguers and create an attack angle. And so what he had was a list of the best bat speed in, in, uh, the big leagues. And so he's got Gary Sanchez, number one, Aaron judge, number two, Joey Gallo, number three, Pete Alonzo, number four, and Vlad Guerrero, number four, number five. Now, the reason I bring up attack angle here is that's, that's the best bat speed. So Gary Sanchez is a 78, Vlad Guerrero is a 77 mile per hour. However, all the guys on the top bat speed, uh, on this list, having a positive attack angle, except for Vlad Guerrero. 
And there's this tweet from Daniel Coyne saying, Vladito likely has a negative attack angle, which is pretty unique for someone who swings the bat that fast. When I was dumb, I always thought this would be a limiting factor on his career. Now I drool over his 162 ISO while swinging down on the ball. So I think what we're saying here is that we're a small tweak away from greatness on Vlad. And the 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 exhibits that we have to to show that are an already established high exit velocity, an already established good strikeout rate and hit tool. Uh, and you combine those two uh, with a slight tweak to his attack angle, uh, and you're going to have someone that could be like Pete Alonso with a, with a better hit tool. It's a scary player. That's a scary player. I think that's a very scary player. And I think that I'm willing to take the chance given that Jeff McNeil is, is old and does not have these foundational things like bat speed and exit velocity. He's more of a one tool guy and it's elite. That hit tool is elite, but I don't think that there's a lot else going on there. And uh, Meadows, I think, is the other is the second place uh, finisher for me. Uh, but given what, how we know about what we know about how stolen bases age, uh, I wouldn't expect Meadows to necessarily steal ten bases next year. He's twenty four. He hit thirty three homers. Uh, you know, I would expect him to do something like hit thirty homers and steal eight to nine bases next year. So that seems like a much more that if that's what I'm risking, I think I'm okay with that. Just another thought: if you if you're loaded with keepers in a limited situation like this, you could definitely make a run at Acuna or Yelich mm-hmm. or Mookie Betts, and to do it, you probably got to give up Cole. But if you pair Cole with someone you weren't going to keep, and you end up going from best pitcher to a top five hitter who's probably ranked ahead of Cole in most systems and most formats. That's worth it, isn't it? Yeah. And I'm not sure that you have to go with Cole. I mean, if you're starting with Vlad Guerrero and Austin Meadows, that's pretty sexy, you know, especially if you're going after Yelich for the, for the right owner that would work. But even if they said, I'm not going to do Vlad jr. And Meadows, but I'll do it for Cole and Meadows. I think you take that. I think you you you, you turn a player that you're not going to keep in Meadows and Garrett Cole into Christian Yelich, and then you hold Yelich, Trout, and Vlad. And Jr. Vlad, you might have held anyway. Yeah, it's definitely that's the time when you have that close of a of a keeper decision on your hands. I think that's the time to really try and over. It sounds like overpaying, but it's not. There is no overpaying in these situations. One other part of the question that came in uh, with Chandler, it was a question about the winter meetings and uh, if there's going to be any sort of meetup. So we'll have to kind of figure that out. I won't be there, but uh, perhaps you will have uh, a gap. You're not going to be there? I want to go, but uh, I am not going. Oh, that's too bad. I'm sorry to hear that. It is a, it's, it's a bummer, but yeah, there's always 2020. San Diego's a great winter meetings city, though. Yes, and... I'm thinking I'm trying to put together something on the Sunday afternoon, early evening uh, before the winter meetings. I'm thinking uh, North Park and, uh, you know, there's a oh, there's a new place that I want to check out. I can count as my beer of the week, although I'm not drinking it yet, uh, is a place called Pure Project. And it's in, in Bankers Hill. So I'm thinking about something like Pure Project. Modern Times and Hamilton's 
as a kind of Sunday afternoon descent into madness. And uh, that'll be uh, how I start the winter meetings off, which is, of course, stupid. I should be, you know, working my phones or whatever other BS. But uh, it's San Diego, man. I'm going to do it. Yeah, well, you, you got that free time when you land. I mean, you're going to work really hard for three straight days, like, at the meetings. Those are exhausting days. Like, as fun as they yeah. are, they are very tiring work days as well. So I do like that, that Sunday kickoff. A lot of BSing. A lot, a lot of talking. Uh, so details probably to come on, on Twitter on that and probably on this show as well. But it is in the works. Uh, one last question. This one comes from Gautam, I believe is the pronunciation. I really should have asked before uh, putting the email in the rundown. So before my you mistake. butchered it. Yeah, I know. Uh, this, is a, <laughs> this is an auto-new question, but it's kind of a philosophy question about holding players at or near their market price. So... Uh, the question is, I'm trying to devise a strategy best suited for this team. You sent us the link, but do I trade the high-priced guys like $50 Chris Bryant, $48 Manny Machado, $48 Paul Goldschmidt, uh, $23 Matt Chapman, or try to hold as many as possible? What return should I be shooting for when trading one of the big bats or, or any of those big bats? And he points out weaknesses are outfield, second base, and catcher. So finding a general approach to attacking the... My keepers are kind of at their inflated price or close to it already problem. Uh, how do you go about deciding what to do in those circumstances, you know? In this particular situation with Autonew, uh, third base is overvalued. Corner infield is overvalued. So I have a feeling that Bryant and Goldschmidt are not keepers at those prices. Uh, and he'll probably discover that quickly in trade discussions. And he may be able to get a lot more with 98. He may be able to get those two players back plus another player with $98. Uh, $48 Machado is a little bit harder because he's a shortstop. Um, but I have a feeling that uh, he may also not be a keeper. So I would shop those guys and see what the market says. That's that's going to help you as much as people are annoying and, um, you know, uh, tell you... Uh, you know, annoying things in trade negotiations. Sometimes you can kind of read between the tea leaves and say, wow, no one's really tickling on these guys. Um, there's a, in auto in particular, there is a, a, a surplus value calculator that you can Google and find uh, a lot of people sort of use that as sacrosanct. So you'll find that people reject uh, a lot of offers based on just that. And this is where I wanted to kind of talk about keeping it price or a little bit over is that I find that the auction a lot of times is just full of guys coming off bad years. Um, and, you know, that's not always the best place to shop. Uh, sometimes guys coming off bad years are because they're old and done. So um, I, I, I feel like uh, the auction is overvalued. And since you said you were in third place, uh, you may find that one of those guys kind of lean towards Machado because he under uh, he underproduced his barrels is something that um, that uh, Alex Chamberlain found. Um, you may you may get a bounce back from him and he could be your shortstop. Uh, and uh, but the other guys, uh, you may find that holding Machado is a good idea because you're a third place team going for first place and having a guy at his price is still valuable. This is kind of something that happens in the big leagues is, you know, people talk about, oh, you shouldn't trade for Cole Hamels because, you know, you have to pay him $20 million. Well, you also get Cole Hamels like like there are there's only one Cole Hamels available. Right. 
So sometimes it's worth it to keep a guy, you know, at or maybe slightly over his thing if you're a competitive team that's ready to go for it and, you know, you don't necessarily want to put him back out of the market and let someone else buy them from you. So, I, I you know, Goldschmidt, uh, after with his age and season, uh, Bryant with his season and his, and his position, um, I'm not so sure on. But Machado, I know 48 is high, but... Uh, he's a shortstop in, in auto new and, uh, the, you know, you'll have to kind of see what happens. Yeah. It is tricky too. Cause you got to think, I mean, those leagues being OBP leagues that makes that category even safer, right? I mean, the fact that Goldschmidt walks a lot, makes him less risky in that format. Bryant, mm-hmm. there's, there's such a high floor guys. If you're going to end up overpaying for risky bounce back types in the auction anyway, versus overpaying for guys that are extremely likely to come close yeah. to making value. There's a floor and ceiling conversation to have I there think too. You, yeah. you gotta hold some floor there. I mean I so I I'm not I'm not afraid of holding salary in keeper leagues if I if I knew there's gonna be a surprising amount of underpriced talent in an auction, then maybe I'd be a little more aggressive about chopping some of the, the high priced keepers. But in a situation like that, I wouldn't wouldn't be too worried about dealing all of them maybe you trade one just to have a little more flexibility and of of the three i think bryant not not because he's two dollars more than the others but i think bryant's the one i'd be most likely to flip yeah he probably has the the most uh, possible trade value at 27 years old uh coming off a season with the best obp possibly of the three uh and playing a position that's overvalued not a new um that would be uh that would be a place that i would look to trade Machado would be a place that I'd look to possibly keep, and Goldschmidt might be just a cut. Chapman, I think, might be just a keep. Uh, the best closer in the game at twenty three dollars is not that not, not too too bad. If that's Matt Chapman, it's definitely a keep oh. there too. I, it doesn't say which Chapman. I I, I kind of assumed. I assumed I the su- oldest. I assumed Matt because the question was about hitters. Oh, but that's that's a nice discount on Matt Chapman, isn't it? That I'd hold him. Yeah, easy hold at twenty three. But I mean, yeah, maybe the most tradable of anybody in that group. Because yeah, but I believe this. Back. I believe this power output, and he's kind of a foundational type player for me. And I think there could even be, you know, one little slight, you know, step forward for him. Even. Yeah, uh, I'm totally with you on Matt Chapman. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, beer of the week returns in December. But if you got questions for us to answer on a future episode, our new email address is ratesandbarrels at theathletic.com. Any subject line you want, that will still reach us. You don't have to do the old fantasy pods thing. So ratesandbarrels at theathletic.com. You can find Eno on Twitter at Eno Saris. I am at Derek Van Riper. Uh, be sure to keep an eye out on the baseball team podcast we produce here at The Athletic as November comes to a close. We've got some great episodes of those coming your way very soon. Our next episode will post late next week, so no episode next Tuesday, but we will have an episode that comes up. I think it's Friday is the actual post date for that, so hope everybody out there has a safe and happy Thanksgiving you know, enjoy the uh, the beer and the food and everything that uh, you'll be having over the next week or so. And looking forward to catching up with you again uh, after the holiday. Yeah, and uh, it's time to be thankful, as in, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>